something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind Listener Mail. My name is Joe McCormick. My regular co-host Robert Lamb is out on the day that I'm recording this, so I'm going to be reading and responding to some listener messages solo today. But Rob should be back with me for tomorrow's episode. We read listener mail every Monday on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And if you would like to get in touch but you've never done it before, why not give it a try? You can reach us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Any and all types of messages are welcome. If you have feedback on a recent episode, want to provide a correction or add your thoughts on something we discussed, uh, if you'd like to share something random that you think we would find interesting, or if you want to suggest a topic for us to cover in the future, even if you just want to say hi, tell us about your experience listening to the show, send it on in. It's contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Okay, I'm going to kick things off with some responses to our episodes on the moons of Uranus. Uh, let's see. So in that series on the moons of Uranus, we talked about how difficult it is to come up with a visual representation of the solar system that faithfully communicates the size of objects and the true scale of the distances between them while being comprehensible all at once. Uh, you, you can't really do it in, say, a single-page illustration in a book. But a number of listeners got in touch about various, often very clever ways people have tried to demonstrate the scale of the solar system using videos or uh, interactive media. So this message is from Shana. Shana says, hello, Rob and Joe. I'm currently listening to Moons of Uranus Part 1 and felt the need to email this before I forgot. 
Uh, while there are no pictures that can show the true distance of planets in our solar system, a few years ago, some folks created a giant scale model in Nevada and created a short film about it. Here's the description directly, uh, uh, directly from them. Quote, on a dry lake bed in Nevada, a group of friends built the first scale model of the solar system with complete planetary orbits, a true illustration of our place in the universe. Uh, and if folks listening want to look this up, the video is called To Scale the Solar System, and it's currently on YouTube. At least it was when I recorded this. Uh, Shana says it's very cool, and I think y'all would enjoy the video. Well, yes, thank you for sending this, Shana. Uh, I think this is totally a very excellent mini documentary. It's by a couple of filmmakers named Wiley Overstreet and Alex Garash, and it's definitely worth a look. So they staged this in a place called uh, Black Rock Desert. Again, this is in sort of the northwest corner of the U.S. state of Nevada. And in order to build a scale model of the solar system with the Earth pegged to the size of a marble, they figure out that they need about seven miles of flat ground to, to represent the orbital plane of the sun and all of its major planets. And they do this, as they say in the description, in a dry lake bed, measuring out the distances with what looks like surveying equipment and then marking the orbital pathways with tire tracks. So they're out there like, uh, like driving a van around in these giant circles uh, around in the sand. And in line with our original point in the episode, it is shocking to see suddenly how far out they have to drive after Saturn. Of course, the distances increase, you know, as you go uh, out from Earth and Mars to Jupiter and Saturn. But after Saturn, to mark the orbit of Uranus and then of Neptune, the, the distances are gargantuan. And in the end, the radius of the orbit of the, the little ball representing the planet Neptune is 5.6 kilometers or 3.5 miles. So the full diameter of the model is about seven miles. And uh, absolutely no disrespect at all to what they did here, which again is excellent. But I think it still sort of fails to capture both the scale of the distance and the scale of the objects all at once. Because when you zoom out enough to see the full orbit of Neptune, the differences in size between the objects in the model become impossible to detect. In fact, they're impossible to detect zoomed much further in than that. They're all just points of light traveling around in ellipses in the distance. So uh, I certainly don't think this is a failure on the part of the filmmakers. I suspect that there is just like literally no way to do this given the resolution of human vision. Another message on this subject from Brian. Brian says, greetings. I recently enjoyed your Moons of Uranus podcasts, and my memory was pricked by one of the comments you made during the first episode. You were talking about how difficult it is to accurately represent both size and distance for depictions of the solar system. I've seen several videos of various attempts, uh, and then I think he's referring to the one I just described, uh, with a beach ball-sized sun leading to a Neptune uh, multiple miles away. But there is one easy-to-access source that blew my mind. And for a brief description, Brian provides a link here. This is a website by a designer named Josh Worth, and it's called If the Moon Were Only One Pixel, a Tediously Accurate Map of the Solar System. Uh, and it begins with a sort of palm-of-the-hand-sized representation of the sun and then lets you scroll, a horizontal scroll, through space at accurate 
uh, scale distances until you reach accurate scale illustrations of the planets. And as the title indicates, Earth's moon is one pixel. If you actually do this, the amount of scrolling required is ludicrous. You will go plaid. Brian continues, this site does a fantastic job at really demonstrating the space between worlds. It's almost impossible to not fast click the scroll bar, even though you skip over some of the author's commentary, just because there is so much empty space. After scrolling and scrolling through endless amounts of space, you finally get to Jupiter and then look at the scroll bar and realize you've not even gone one quarter of the way through. This site goes out to Pluto for your reference. There are lots of informative pictures and imaginative comments along the way, but I challenge anyone to just scroll using the arrow button. You won't be able to do it. This site really slams home how much of space is, well, space. Even in our neighborhood, things are so far apart as to be unreachable. And that's just our solar system. The end of the scroll slaps you in the face with the fact that uh, after all that, to get to the next checkpoint, meaning the next star, uh, the closest star to our solar system, you'd need to repeat the entire scroll 6,771 more times. I'd highly encourage you to play around for a bit on this site. It's very instructive and fun, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Once again, yeah, I think this is an excellent model, but of course, uh, it still does not allow you to take it in all at once, which just might not be a thing humans can do. All right, uh, getting a little bit away from the, the scale question, uh, just to other topics raised in our Moons of Uranus series, this is from Jim. Jim says, hi, guys. Love the new series. Early in the episode, Joe was talking about planetary distances. I was curious if you've ever discussed the Titius-Bode law that's spelled T-I-T-I-U-S and then Bode is B-O-D-E. I don't know if that's uh, Bode or Boda. I'm just going to say Bode. And Jim says, which is a mathematical formula that predicts planetary distances from the sun, Jim. Yes, we actually have discussed the Titius-Bode law before. I think it came up in our series on hypothetical solar system objects that either don't exist because they never existed or maybe once existed but no longer exist. That series was called The Lost Daughters of Aten, A-T-E-N. If you want a deeper treatment, you can go check out those episodes. But the short version is that the Titius-Bode is a peculiar observation that you can predict the approximate mean orbital distance of all the planets out to Uranus with a simple mathematical formula. It's got a few variables based on like planet order and, and uh, the distance of an astronomical unit. And this was uh, written about in the 18th century by two German astronomers named Johann Daniel Titius and Johann Ellert Bode, the two Johanns. And this formula uh, yeah, it is a really interesting uh, observation. So it gets very close to predicting the orbital distances of Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. There are some cases where it's a little bit off, but it's very close. And at the time of its original publication, there was an interesting complication, which was that the, the prediction seemed to break down because it predicted a planet orbiting at 2.8 astronomical units, so 2.8 times the distance between the Earth and the Sun, uh, and that would be between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. 
where no planet was known at the time. However, this failure was reversed with the discovery of the dwarf planet Ceres in 1801, which we now know to be the largest object in the asteroid belt. So Ceres and the asteroid belt roughly correspond to the gap in the predicted sequence between Jupiter and Mars. Titius Bode then also uh, racked up a victory uh, when when Uranus was discovered. This was actually earlier. Uh, this was in the late 18th century. But Titius Bode had a victory with the discovery of, of Uranus because, what do you know, it was very close again to what the formula predicted for the next planet after Saturn. But uh, despite this really impressive record and despite the unfortunate use of the word law sometimes in its name, people say the Titius Bode law. Other people just say like the Titius Bode rule or Titius Bode or something. Uh, it is not a law of nature. It totally fails to predict the orbit of Neptune. And as best I can tell, last time I, I looked into this, experts in astrophysics are not aware of any reason this formula had to be true or had to hold true meaning it is not derived from any fundamental facts about how solar systems generally form or any laws of physics that would apply to all planets and stars in the galaxy. It's probably just a really strange, fascinating coincidence that you can put together a mathematical formula that happens to tell you where most but not all of the big things in our solar system are. Uh, so maybe the two Johans were kind of doing the number 23, but in space. All right, this next message about moons of Uranus is from Eric. Eric says, Hi, Robin Joe. Thanks for the episodes about Uranus and its moons. I've been meaning to read A Midsummer Night's Dream, but haven't gotten around to it yet, so I didn't know anything about the characters for whom many of the moons are named. But it sheds some light on an urban fantasy book series that I love called The Dresden Files. The author borrows mythology from nearly everywhere on the internal principle that all mythology is actually true. Some of the Midsummer characters, including Mab and Titania, feature prominently. Uh, then Eric says, you mentioned Messier and his comet addiction in the first episode. And uh, to refresh, yeah, this is referring to the French astronomer Charles Messier, one of the people William Herschel wrote to in 1781 about his discovery of Uranus. At first, William Herschel thought that, the, that it wasn't a planet, but a comet or something. Uh, and Messier was, was so famous for finding comets that he was nicknamed the ferret of comets by the French king uh, Louis XV. But back to Eric's message. Eric writes, Comets were kind of a big deal in the 18th and 19th century. In that weird period in which people understood that heavenly bodies obeyed natural laws, but they still kind of liked astrology. After Halley, people realized that more of the fuzzy blobs they spotted were comets, so there was kind of a rush to be the first to spot the next comet. Charles Messier was one of those, and he created the Messier catalog, which includes Andromeda, M31, the Crab Nebula, M1, and over a hundred other objects. Interestingly, he cataloged these objects not because he thought them uh, interesting, but because they weren't comets. It was basically his oops list, so he wouldn't waste time looking at fuzzy blob number 31 night after night in the hope that it would turn out to be a comet. It's ironic that today, amateur astronomers typically spend far more time looking at the things on his list than searching for comets. 
In fact, there are certain times of year when some amateur astronomers will try to complete a Messier marathon in which they try to spot each of the 110 Messier objects in a single night. I've never done it because I'm a very, very lazy amateur astronomer. Thanks for the great episodes. While I would be perfectly happy to have you put out episodes on space objects every week, I think it's better for all of your other listeners to space out, pun unintended, these types of episodes. Hope you are all well, Eric. Thank you, Eric. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, this next message comes from Constantine, and it concerns our episodes on the beaver and also a little bit on the moons of Uranus. Constantine says, Gents, thank you for reading my email last week. I have gained tremendous cool points in my household after that. Mind you, those points are self-assigned, but they are valued just the same. Uh, Yeah, as a reminder, Constantine wrote us a a really excellent, highly detailed message about uh, Greek pronunciation in English, especially as it applies to the names of planets. 
Constantine says, uh, I didn't think I would be writing in so soon again, but I have a small complaint to register with the authorities. How can you have not one but two beaver episodes and not mention that this mighty, mighty rodent is the national animal of Canada? The beaver even appears on our nickel. See attached. All right. So I am looking at a picture of the beaver side, uh, the, beaver, uh, the beaver face, I guess, of the Canadian nickel. This one is minted 1965. And I'm going to put on my art critic hat for the Canadian nickel. I have to say, I sense a lot of pathos in this beaver. This beaver looks far less whimsical and substantially more aggressive than most. So it is head down, ears back, muscles tensed, forepaws in advance with claws digging into the wet log below. The beaver, I would say, on the nickel looks not like a herbivorous rodent, but like a predator preparing to strike. But it's a beaver, so what is it going to strike? Like a willow stump? And then there's another layer of emotion. Underneath the predatory pose, there is a thwarted, frustrated sadness in its posture. It even made me think of the Rilke poem, The Panther, which is uh, about a panther kept in a zoo in Paris. Uh, and in the translation by Stephen Mitchell, the poem begins, His vision from the constantly passing bars has grown so weary that it cannot hold anything else. It seems to him there are a thousand bars, and behind the bars, no world. So I was thinking about this, and finally it hit me. I think the beaver inside the nickel wants to break out. Everywhere it goes, maybe it hears the sound of water running, the, the trickling sound that, that drives the beaver mad, and it knows it must find and plug the leak. But to do that, it has to escape the confines of the coin. And maybe one day it will. So back to Constantine's message. Uh, sure, America has its eagle and the UK has its lion, but we Canucks wear the best smile with the buck-toothed beaver as our national animal of choice. So beware lest you upset us and we wave our sticks at you. Ah, very nice. Uh, despite this regal creature being part of everyday Canadian life, I was shocked to learn that the beaver has a cloaca. Even my wife, the veterinarian, was surprised that that detail did not make it into her curriculum at vet school. And now I work this fact into every conversation I have with folks back in our maple leaf land. By the way, I forgot to mention in my email on Uranus that in Greek, we call the eight planets of the solar system by the Greek god names. So uh, it is Hermes, that would be Mercury, Aphrodite, that would be Venus, Gaia, that would be Earth, though uh, Constantine told us last time that in Greek, Gaia is pronounced ye. Uh, Aries, which is Mars. Zeus, which is Jupiter. Kronos, which is Saturn. Uranus and Poseidon, which is Neptune. Take that, Romans. As for the planet Pluto, planet in quotation marks, I guess because of Pluto no longer being considered a, a, a major planet, for whatever reason, it went rogue and goes by both Hades and Pluto in Greek. And that is the real reason that the Greek Illuminati had Pluto axed from the pantheon of planets. I'm just saying, don't cross us. Things happen. Stay groovy. Cheers. Regards. Constantine. All right. Thank you, Constantine. All right, uh, I'm going to do a little bit of Weird House Cinema response. Uh, this is about our episode on the Super Mario Brothers 1993. It is from Andrew. Andrew. 
Andrew says, Hi, Robert and Joe. Love the show. Thank you for all your hard work in making it happen. But after the most recent Weird House, I had to leap to the defense of a film that, if not great or even really good, was one of my favorites of all time. I loved the Super Mario Brothers movie when I was a kid. It's hard to overstate just how cool and grown up it felt to my seven-year-old brain. I saw it in the theater with my best friend at the time, and it became regular viewing for me after my father rented it on VHS and copied it to our Betamax. A few years ago, it was available to stream, and I watched it again with my kids. And, yeah, it's not good. There's still a lot to love. The chemistry between John Leguizamo and Bob Hoskins, despite both allegedly being drunk for much of the production, all the stoogely antics of Iggy and Spike, uh, the big dopey grin all the Goombas have. But yeah, it's a mess. You talked in the podcast about what a challenge it would have been to develop a plot around something as narratively thin as a Mario game. However, to place the film in context, there were already at least three separate Super Mario cartoons available for Saturday morning viewing on cable at the time of its release. Those of us who watched them were already accustomed to these characterizations and stories in Mario's world. The film just gave us an edgier take on everything, which fit perfectly with the zeitgeist of the early 90s. You know, off mic, Rob and I were discussing, yeah, other uh, adaptations of Super Mario Brothers to different media, and he shared with me something that I think somebody sent him on the Discord, so I don't actually remember at this point what the media was, but it was a Super Mario Brothers cartoon that may have been from Japan uh, that I think predates the the live action movie. And I, I just watched a clip from part of it. It is the, the Super Mario Brothers hiking through the desert with some kind of blue pet, uh, like a blue dog-like creature at their side. And there's a musical number. And the lyrics in uh, translation include lines like, don't cry anymore, baby. I'm right here for you. We are super, but I don't know. We're super, but what to do with my love? Now, if only the live-action movie had had more of that painful, yearning, emotional core to it, uh, you know, I, I can I can almost hear Bob Hoskins saying it. We're super, but I don't know what to do with my love. Anyway, back to Andrew's message. Andrew says, The film also gave me one of my first cultural Easter egg hunts. There were the big obvious references to the game franchise, like pipe travel, the red and green coveralls, the mushrooms, jump boots, etc. But there were also a number of more uh, subtle nods as well. The cartridges they load into their boots have faces painted on them like bullet bills. The brutalist architecture inside Koopa's Tower invokes the blocks that make up the fortress levels in Super Mario Bros. 3. And the lady in red in the movie is called Big Bertha, like the large angry fish that tries to swallow you whole in some of the water levels. Some of these references seem a little lazy in retrospect, but I can still remember how, it's, how exciting it seemed for me as a child to keep noticing these details. So, yeah, it's definitely not a great film, but contrary to your assessment, I think there was a lot there for children of the decade to latch onto, particularly at a time when there was a very different standard for what was appropriate for kids to see. In spite uh, of all its shortcomings, Super Mario Bros. 1993 is easily one of my favorite films, just in terms of how much enjoyment I got out of it when I was young. And remember, this was considered to be the first ever game-to-film adaptation, and none of us had any idea what that was supposed to look like. 
There was no formula for a feature like this, so the filmmakers chucked us into a bizarre, violent world with sticky reptilian sexuality and alternately gross and imposing locales. That's a huge swing, and even if it didn't totally connect, it's still infinitely more interesting than almost any video game movie that came after. Finally, I'm convinced there is a deep bonus joke hidden behind the layers of membranous fungus and garbage. You remarked on how all the cars have Mad Max spikes and shoot sparks uh, and have uh, old skeletons hanging off of their grills. You probably also noticed that they all have electrical leads that contact metal cages above the streets like bumper cars and that the police car that Mario and Luigi steal loses power once they exit the city. It would seem that the people of Dino Hatton are pioneering the electric car, presumably because the descendants of dinosaurs would be reluctant to develop fossil fuel sources. Parentheses, you and I know that oil is the remains of oceanic plants, animals, and bacteria, but I'll bet the filmmakers didn't. Thank you again for all you do to make my workdays more bearable and educate me on subjects I had never even heard of, Andrew. Oh, well, thank you so much, Andrew. Uh, I Point taken, you know, whatever the film's shortcomings, I, I think, uh, I hope it came through at least that it was worthy of a deep, deep look. And I still stand by my comment that uh, I, I would read a book-length work going into the the making and significance of Super Mario Brothers, the movie. It is... Uh, if nothing else, an absolutely fascinating how-did-this-happen uh, artifact. Okay, I think we're going to call it there for today. We will have more listener mail to feature next Monday. On Tuesdays and Thursdays of each week, we do our core Stuff to Blow Your Mind episodes, which are most often about science and culture in some way. Uh, on Wednesdays, we do a short feature called The Artifact or The Monster Fact. And on Fridays, we do our series called Weird House Cinema. That's a, uh, a more relaxed atmosphere where each week we just watch and discuss a strange film, good or bad, well-known, or obscure as long as it's weird. And on Saturdays, we run an episode from The Vault. If you are not subscribed to this show, do it. Do it now. We're called Stuff to Blow Your Mind, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Look us up, hit subscribe. Keep getting us in your feed. Uh, huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future, or even just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. 
I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.